Hi everyone, welcome to the Fancy Lab Coat Guild. Today you're going to hear a recording of an AMA hosted on June 8, 2023 with Dr. Mike Fagan, an expert in cancer research. He's an associate professor and the director of experimental therapeutics at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. This episode is sponsored by SciFind.io, the expert network for scientific troubleshooting. Be mindful that it is a live conversation and has a format that involves the audience. We're going to dive right into it. Enjoy the AMA. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, this is our AMA. Um, some ground rules before we get started. If you have any questions, you can type them into the AMA chat thread on the right. I'll be moderating it and posing it for our speaker directly. I do have a bunch of questions already ahead of time. Uh, this AMA will be recorded and it'll be posted afterwards, so uh, we can take a look at that. Um, the AMA is sponsored by SciFind.io. Um, we're an expert network for scientists who share information beyond the publication. So if you run into troubleshooting problems on experiments or looking for equipment hacks or workarounds, uh, you can check out our communities and make a post for free, ask a question. Uh, we have a really passionate community of scientists who are willing to help. So without further ado, Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome. Buckle up, because our guide today is none other than Dr. Mike Fagan, the mastermind battling pancreatic cancer one gene at a time. He's an associate professor and director of ex experimental therapeutics at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. And he also takes on the role of a quote-unquote detective in his lab, unraveling the mysteries of cancer growth and our body's response to therapy, uh, specifically how everyday medications interfere with them. Uh, let's not forget, aside from his passion for cracking these genetic codes, he's also a big advocate for hiking and bagels, which I want to hear more on these doughy topological circles of joy, or I guess, are they mugs? Maybe we'll discover today if there's a secret correlation between carbs and scientific genius. Uh, Dr. Fagan himself, I mean, he's just got a huge depth of knowledge, a really insatiable curiosity. And when we chatted before, he's just got a really infectious kind of zest and um, a real pleasure to talk to. So let's welcome Dr. Mike Fagan to the AMA. Thank you very much. It's really great to be here. Yep, um, I'm going to get started with a few questions, but why don't we start kind of from the beginning? Uh, you know, what first got you interested in biology? What were you like as a kid, your first fascinations with it? A bit of story time. <laughs> um, that is a good question. I have absolutely no idea. Uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, I just played a lot of sports uh, growing up and uh, played on computers and things like that. I was not one of these people who was outside like playing in ponds or anything like that. Um, but I just um, like science. And when I got to school, science was the thing that um, I was good at. And I just kind of kept taking science classes and uh, realized that <clears throat> biology was the, the thing that I just found most interesting. And so I just kind of naturally um, kind of fell into it, I guess, because it was the thing that I was always most interested in. Um, but it's, it's sad. There wasn't one experience that kind of, uh, you know, uh, was my origin story for why I decided to, to study biology or anything like that. Although I had a, um, uh, a relative of mine, a great uncle who was a, um, a chemist and, um, my grandfather was, was also a chemist. And so, um, I don't know, I think in my history somewhere, I have like, uh, some science DNA floating around and, uh, you know, I think interacting with them and, uh, kind of led me towards science, at least. One doesn't necessarily need some kind of, you know, magical moment. <laughs> For some, it's kind of incrementalism, right? Yeah. Um, I think I'd like to, to to kind of start off. Um, if you can give a quick introduction on your current work and research, uh, what fascinates you these days? Sure. Yeah. So um, my lab studies pancreatic cancer. And uh, we study it because it's a really, really difficult cancer to treat. Um, you know, it's, it's I think, uh, not even in the top 10 of all, you know, the, the most highly diagnosed cancers, but uh, it's number three right now and soon to be number two in, in terms of uh, 
the most cancer deaths. And, um, you know, it's a huge problem because uh, most patients die within a couple of years. Only like about 10% of patients can live within five years of their, of their diagnosis. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for this. It's uh, diagnosed, you know, really late usually. Most patients have metastatic disease by the time that um, it's diagnosed. And so those, uh, those people can't have surgery. Um, I think only about 10 to 20% of people who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer can, are eligible for surgery uh, because the cancer hasn't spread beyond the pancreas, um, which is really the only kind of uh, cure for pancreatic cancer at this point. Um, the drugs that we have for pancreatic cancer are kind of nonspecific. It's, it's all chemotherapy and radiation that you know, kind of works for a little bit, but then doesn't uh, work for very long until so the tumors come back very quickly. Um, there's no early diagnostic test, and so we have no good biomarkers like we do for prostate cancer. Um, and all of the, all of the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the, the ways that you know that, that you're sick are all kind of nonspecific. You might have like some stomach pain or jaundice or, you know, things like that or, or diabetes. And these are all things that are kind of associated with other stuff. And so um, it's, a, it's a huge problem, and uh, I think there's so many interesting questions to, uh, to study. And so um, my lab has kind of uh, been focused on, on pancreatic cancer. We do lots of computational biology where we're trying to um, look at all the different uh, mutations and all the different genes that are expressed in, in uh, human pancreatic cancer and trying to understand which of those are actually driving the disease so we can come up with new therapies. And... Um, then we bring a lot of the, the stuff that we learned from all the, um, the bioinformatics work that we do into um, cell models and mouse models. So we can actually uh, test some of these, these drugs in, in our mouse models of pancreatic cancer. And then we have uh, cellular models that we use where we can grow specific cells in a dish to start to break down the mechanisms of actually how these things are, uh, are causing disease. And so we kind of use all three of those and, and bounce back and forth between them trying to answer all these questions. So those are the models that we use, and um, we have two big questions right now. One of them is um, trying to understand how genes are dysregulated in cancer. So uh, we know that uh, cancer is very different from normal cells. Um, in cancer, lots of genes uh, get overexpressed, lots of genes get underexpressed, so uh, gene regulation is all over the place. And we know that a lot of those changes are really important for cancer growth and for metastatic spread and things like that. Um, but what we try to do is kind of take a step back and say, well, how is all that happening? What are the processes that are driving all those big changes? Because maybe we could attack those processes and block those big changes in gene expression um, instead of kind of going further downstream and, and blocking, you know, one of the individual changes themselves. And so right now we're working on this one gene regulatory process called alternative polyadenylation. Um, which I can get more into if people are interested, but uh, we have a, a drug that targets this process specifically. And when we um, hit our cells with that drug, the, the cancer cells stop growing, but the normal cells don't care, which is great. So we're doing a lot of work to try to understand how that, how that drug works and how we can bring it into our mouse models and hopefully into humans. And then the other side of the lab focuses on this kind of a different question of, you know, we think so much about the treatments that patients get for cancer, like chemotherapy and radiation. Um, and, you know, it kind of ends there, but you have to remember that associated with the cancer are all these other uh, issues. So in pancreatic cancer, for example, you know, almost every patient is taking uh, opioids because they have huge amounts of pain. Uh, these patients frequently have lots of um, insomnia and they also have, um, uh, depression and anxiety. And so a lot of these patients are given anti-anxiety medicines like benzodiazepines. Um, and they also have lots of side effects of, of the treatments themselves that require treatment with these other medications. And it turns out that these other medications, you know, when, when they get tested um, in, in the clinic to see if they work, they test them, you know, against anxiety or against pain. And they don't really, you know, consider what happens in the context of cancer because, you know, that's not what people care about. Um, but in real life, patients are taking these things and have cancer at the same time. And so these other drugs might be actually impacting the tumor itself. And so we're finding that lots of drugs that people take uh, for these different reasons can either positively or negatively impact um, cancer growth. And so we're doing epidemiolog uh, epidemiological studies to understand the interactions between some of these drugs and uh, patient outcome, and then 
taking those drugs, putting them into our mice, putting them onto our cells to see how they work. And that's kind of the, the second half of what my lab does. Yeah, that, that part on the everyday kind of medicines that we use was really fascinating for me. I think there's a piece of that that makes it accessible even for a layman in a lot yeah. of ways. It's like, how does aspirin affect this stuff? Um, I'm curious, what are, some, what are some interesting unintended effects that you found with some drugs or if you have even any hypothesis on things that you, maybe you have like a gut feeling. Um, yeah, sure. So, you know, I think there's so many examples of this. I think, you know, a really good example that was published by uh, some of my colleagues here at Roswell was they noticed that patients taking um, certain, uh, um, what is it, a certain beta blockers uh, actually had a, a better outcome than patients taking uh, no beta blockers or different other beta blockers. So it turns out that, um, you know, cancer causes a huge amount of stress and stress is really bad for uh, cancer, um, probably because when you're stressed out, your immune system isn't working as well. And so, um, uh, and, and it turns out that, that when they took um, these things and modeled them in mice and they were able to kind of stress mice out and saw that their, their tumors grow faster and then give them these beta blockers and found that the tumors grew more slowly and this was all dependent on the immune system, um, and so now they're actually going back and doing clinical trials, giving patients these specific beta blockers, which we know are, are very, very safe drugs, because they might actually help uh, the patient through modulation of the immune system. So we're trying to kind of uh, do something similar. And so the, the first work we did was working on these anti-anxiety drugs. And so uh, a grad student in my lab realized that um, in pancreatic cancer, uh, almost everyone you know, suffers from anxiety. A huge number of patients are taking these benzodiazepines like uh, like Ativan and, um, and and Xanax. And so what she did is is looked at the epidemiological data and found um, in pancreatic cancer patients taking uh, lorazepam, um, which is one of the, one of the the most commonly prescribed drug to these patients, actually did a lot worse than patients taking alprazolam, who actually did a lot better. And so it's not like, are you taking an anti-anxiety drug or not? It's which specific anti-anxiety drug are you taking? And so that told us it really wasn't about anxiety. It was about, you know, what else could this drug be doing? And so it turns out that lorazepam, um, but not alprazolam, can activate um, these cells within the tumor called cancer-associated fibroblasts. And these cancer-associated fibroblasts are the things that are, are, are um, kind of spitting out all of these um, uh, proteins that cause uh, inflammation. And so um, what we think is happening in the patients is that patients taking lorazepam are having this huge inflammatory response within their tumors. This is um, closing up their blood vessels and now the chemotherapy can't get uh, in as well. And so these patients are gonna do a lot worse than patients who don't have that response, like the patients taking alprazolam. So that's uh, kind of uh, what she's been discovering and, and hopefully the, the paper will be published on that soon. And then we have another person in the lab who's really interested in opioids. And so it turns out that, you know, opioids are a huge problem. Um, they're they're uh, addictive, obviously, but something, but, but something like 70% of pancreatic cancer patients take opioids because they have such, um, uh, so much pain uh, because, of, because of the cancer, because nerves can actually grow into the, the pancreatic cancer tumor um, and, and be very, very painful. And so uh, we've known for a long time that opioids actually dampen the immune system. And, uh, but we don't really know what this means in terms of um, the immune system within the tumor itself. So the tumor kind of has its own uh, little immune system. And this is why drugs like uh, immunotherapy drugs work. But immunotherapy does not work in pancreatic cancer. And we think one of the reasons might be because of all of these uh, opioids that, that, that patients are taking. And so a new grad student in the lab is really trying to investigate this, understand what opioids are doing within the tumor and how we can uh, block these things um, to block the side effects of the opioids, but not affect the, the uh, anti-pain effects of the opioids to hopefully um, be able to combine them with immunotherapy and, and kill these tumors. Very fascinating. I think, um, uh, Obviously, it's such a difficult cancer to target. Um, what do you think, kind of maybe a two, two-parter, uh, what do you think are some of the most like groundbreaking discoveries or developments in it? But on top of that, um, what makes it really hard to model this type of cancer in the lab? Like, What are significant challenges for you 
um, in working with it, like could be culturing cells or biopsies, et cetera. Yeah. So I would say um, the newest breakthrough that I think everyone is incredibly excited about right now is the fact that um, there are new inhibitors for uh, the, the gene called KRAS, or the protein called KRAS. So um, KRAS is, is um, a cancer-causing gene mutated in like 90% of patients that have pancreatic cancer. And um, up until now, it was completely undruggable. And the, you know, other top three most commonly mutated genes in pancreatic cancer are all also undruggable. Um, and so this became a huge problem. You know, other cancers have, have like targeted therapies, like um, uh, patients that have breast cancer are, are all tested for presence of estrogen receptor, and they can get drugs that target the estrogen receptor. Same thing with the androgen receptor in prostate cancer. In lung cancer, you have a gene called EGFR, which can be targeted. Um, and, and, you know, there are all these molecularly targeted therapeutics, and this does not exist at all in, in pancreatic cancer. And so um, uh, a couple of years ago, they, uh, a couple of groups developed these new inhibitors for, for KRAS. Um, unfortunately, there are different mutations in KRAS. There's the, the G12C uh, mutation, which is more prevalent in lung cancer, but also happens very rarely in, in pancreatic cancer, and a drug specifically targeting that mutation was developed and has already been in clinical trials and has shown uh, efficacy. And so that's really, really exciting. Um, You know, there's going to be some efficacy. It's not going to cure, but it's going to prolong life of patients. Um, But now recently there are some G12D inhibitors and KRS G12D, that specific mutation is the one that's that's, uh, very, very common in pancreatic cancer. And so those are kind of going through clinical trials right now. And I think they will be approved and they're going to, you know, increase the, uh, the amount of time people can live with pancreatic cancer, but there's going to be a resistance like there is to almost every other um, targeted therapy. But I think it's incredibly exciting for the field because this did not exist um, before. And yes, I think immunotherapy, you know, using the body's own immune system against cancer has worked in um, a bunch of other cancer types, most particularly melanoma. Uh, it's had no success whatsoever in pancreatic cancer, uh, but I think now there's some there, there's a lot of work ongoing that I think um, you know in the next five to ten years uh, I, I think there will be uh, some successes there, um, and I think that's going to be that's going to be more exciting because I, I think those are more prolonged um, uh, effects that um, that are getting more toward you know long uh, living much longer with it. Um, the huge problems with studying pancreatic cancer in the lab is that um, we have this, uh, it used to be, you couldn't study it at all, but then about uh, 20-something years ago, a, a new mouse model was developed uh, that has this KRAS mutation, has a mutation in another gene called P53, and these mice get tumors that look just like pancreatic cancer, which is great. The mice are a pain to work with. Uh, they get tumors at all random times. Uh, it, it's such a mess, but there have been lots of new models that have been developed that allow us to work with these mice now. Um, one of the other big developments in the past uh, 10 years is the development of uh, organoids, which are uh, allowing us to grow cells in, in three dimensions um, in kind of like this jello-like culture, which um, is much better than the old technique of growing them on plastic plates. Um, but they're very uh, harder to work with. They're expensive. And really, you know, the goal is to kind of be able to say, like, let's grow an organoid from every single patient and then be able to test drugs on that organoid and say which drug we should be able to give it to the patient. But it just takes too long to do all of that stuff. But there's some really uh, cool new techniques that are being done to rapidly, rapidly grow organoids from patients, test them with drugs, and then get those drugs back into patients. And I think that's going to be kind of how we're going to have to uh, treat some of these patients um, in the future. Ooh, that's really cool. Um, I'm curious, like you had mentioned it at the very beginning, but what sorts of tools do you use molecular on or otherwise on the daily? What are some like favorites either with your grad students or yourself, like any lifesavers, any hacks that you've put together, um, with any of those kind of methodological tricks? (laughs) Well, I don't do anything anymore in the lab, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, I don't know. I, I was never the best person at the bench and I was done with it, um, when I finished my postdoc. And so, uh, I barely picked up a pipette after, although last week I did uh, teach a student how to 
how to work with cells and her experiment worked. So I'm very happy about that. So, um, you know, I think we've been using very, very standard tools. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> CRISPR, I think, has, you know, been kind of transformative for, um, you know, assessing gene function. And we've been using that or trying to use that. But, you know, the, the traditional CRISPR, which allows you to knock out a gene, um, isn't always great when the gene you're working with is essential. And so, you know, you can never actually get cells to grow up when you've knocked something out uh, with CRISPR. And so instead of that, you know, we've been using uh, CRISPR interference to, to knock down genes without actually, you know, knocking them out completely to allow the cells to grow. Um, yeah. Uh, what have we been using? I don't know. I, we, don't, we don't really use any fancy uh, new techniques in the lab because a lot of the stuff we do is really focused on analyzing um, uh, cell growth. You know, I, I will talk about one thing that, that we do that's uh, one technique that I think is so cool. Um, we wanted to understand, uh, you know, DNA is, is wrapped into chromatin and then chromatin is, is tightly compacted. Um, and you can either have tightly compact, compacted chromatin uh, or, or kind of open chromatin. And open chromatin allows genes to be expressed. And um, when chromatin is, is tightly wound, you get lots of gene repression. And we thought our, our drug was actually working by, um, by inducing chromatin, the drug for one of our projects was working by kind of inducing um, chromatin damage and, and really opening up the DNA and letting lots of genes to be expressed. And so we found this uh, the cell line um, that uh, a colleague uh, had made. Um, and so what, what they had done is taken uh, HeLa cells, which are cells I, I never like to work with um, because they've just been in culture you know, for, forever and who knows what they are anymore. Um, but but they, they took the HeLa cells and they infected them with GFP. And so one copy of, of GFP got in there and, and, and integrated into the genome. Uh, and so lots of, of the cells would be green. But then they specifically selected for the cells that were not green because they wanted, um, they, they wanted a virus uh, or they, they wanted a specific cell where the, where the GFP gene had been inserted into a densely packed chromatin region that was normally silenced. So it had the ability to you know, express GFP um, only when the chromatin was opened up. And so uh, it's so cool because usually when you express something in a cell, you want it to express and you want to see it. But in this case, they put something into a cell and did not want to see it. And so now when we take our drug and put it on these cells, they glow green because they're able to open up the chromatin. And so that's a, a tool that I didn't know existed. And I, I really love it. Ooh, that's a nifty trick, like reverse psychology chromatin. <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. Uh, I, I never, never would have anticipated that. Yeah, I mean, people have all sorts of different things. I mean, they range from like, obviously, you can have very elaborate, elegant tricks like that. Um, there's also like banal things that make all the difference. Um, I definitely <laughs> a lot of banal ones that changed my life um, in doing those. Um, I think as a as a scientist, I mean, we obviously have a lot of failures. Uh, we need we don't get nearly enough dopamine hits as we should. What keeps you very motivated and passionate about it? And also your 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 graduate students. How do you? Keep yeah, <laughs> I think like half of my job is just being a cheerleader for uh, uh, people in my lab. I try to be very positive and optimistic, um, even if I don't feel like that. But outwardly, I, I try to do that. Um, I don't know. I really like my job. And I like the fact that I can, um, you know, have a lab that's that's asking all these questions that I'm interested in that I don't have to actually do myself, which I think is the, the greatest thing ever. Um, because, you know, it, it takes so long to do experiments, but if you just think about it and someone else does it, you get your answer before you know it because you've forgotten about it. So, um, I don't know. I, I just try to have a, a positive lab environment where people are, um, are working on questions that they're interested in because they thought of them. Um, or, uh, I push them in a direction. So it seems they, they thought of them. Um, uh, but I, but I think for the most part, people are working on, things that they, projects that they've really um, thought of and that they're driving and that they know all the background for uh, more so than I do. And I think if you have that kind of, um, you know, personal stake in it, you're going to be so much more motivated as opposed to me just kind of telling everyone what to do. So um, I don't know. I think uh, getting people who are just interested in science and always want to be asking interesting questions into the lab has really helped me. And um, that's, 
that's really what I've selected for so far. And it seems that it seems to be working. I mean, I think that's a beautiful philosophy and um, definitely gives them a lot of autonomy. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. That people yeah, should, other PI should uh, take notes. <laughs> it's, you know, it's hard because, um, you know, I came here with, with, you know, I, I, there are things I wanted to work on, you know, like I, my lab studies pancreatic cancer. Um, and that's what we're going to focus on. And if you want to study some other cancer, you know, we can maybe talk about it. But at this point, this, this is what I'm going to study. Just because it's, it's hard to write a grant for some other topic and get funding for it um, with, with no experience there. So it's kind of like a practical reason. Um, but like, you know, I came in with things I wanted to do. And when I got here, I said, I want to work on gene regulation and I want to work on G-protein coupled receptors. And my lab is doing that. But the stuff we're doing is, is not at all what I thought we would be doing. Um, and when I just gave my, my promotion talk a couple of months ago or six, whatever it was ago, um, I said, I hope none of you remember my, my chalk talk or, or my job talk here because I didn't do anything that I said I was going to do. Um, so the, the basic premise is the same. Um, but I think giving people freedom within that is, is good. Some, uh, I guess, personal anecdotes or experiences that shaped your perspective as a scientist. Um, you did post a story on SciFind on one of these, one of your first epic fails back in grad school with a cloning attempt. Yeah. Uh, what are some things that, yeah, that shaped you? Um, that's a good question. I think uh, I've learned a lot from the mentors that I've had and um, be that, that good or bad. Um, and I just try to kind of like pick pick out ones that I that I thought were useful and try to not emulate the other ones. Um, but I think you know when I was a when I was a grad student, I um, had a mentor who was uh, what was he uh, the the vice vice dean for research or something. So he would come in every day at eight a.m. Uh, put on uh, take off his he would, he would be wearing a suit, take off a suit jacket, put on his white lab coat, go into his office and work until noon. And then he would take off his lab coat, put on his um, suit jacket and go to the dean's office for the rest of the day. And then like every Saturday morning, he would be there at nine and leave at 12. So like he was very regimented and very like, oh, I think I was, his, I, I was his last grad student. Um, but the cool thing was like, you know, I had a project I was working on and it was kind of following up on a, on a science paper that he'd published. Um, and I was trying to look at like the next, uh, protein downstream of what they discovered and it wasn't going well like every part of the, the the thing just wasn't working and i worked on it for months and months and it wasn't working and now that i think back i'm like well i probably didn't you know spend enough time working on it but at the time i was like this is terrible nothing is nothing is working um but i i read a paper that really um kind of changed my whole thinking about it and i said oh my god i should be studying you know uh this other accessory protein which would let us find this other one and so I went to him and I said, you know, this is what I think we need to study because this would allow us to, you know, answer this whole question. And he said, all right, give me, you know, every paper that's ever been published about these proteins that you're interested in and we'll talk about it. And so I gave him a giant binder filled with papers and he said, you know, all right, let's do it. And so um, then I was able to kind of like change my project and publish, uh, you know, that ended up working. I think I got really lucky and, you know, published a couple of papers in that lab. But now, you know, I think it gave me the the idea that, you know, uh, to trust people when they're, you know, when they when they think they have good ideas, but also to do the reading yourself and make sure that, you know, what you're doing makes sense. And so I spend a lot of time, you know, like uh, making sure that when people have these ideas, I say, give me every paper published on this and we'll talk about it a lot and discuss it and write about it on the whiteboard and make sure it all makes sense. And then we'll go and do it. And so I think having that freedom really... Um, really helped me and really kind of guided the way that I, that I work today. Yeah, I think definitely there's, there's something great about science when you get to be a little decadent and liberated with how you intellectually explore things. I feel like a lot of, um, I might've talked about this in the previous AMA, but I feel like math, math professors have like the greatest life because they, you know, they don't need to think as much about how they're going to get funding and, things like that, like grants, reagents, inventory management, they just waltz in. And <laughs> at least that's my interpretation. And every math PI I've ever professor I've ever met loves their life somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, without having to worry about funding, th things would be a lot better. Yeah, right. Um, uh, I think one of the uh, things that's interesting is how do you approach um, like problem solving or troubleshooting in your own complex experiments? What does your personal workflow look like when you're experimenting or when you're guiding your um, your students towards that? Yeah, so one of the things that I always do is, as I am an absolute stickler for controls, and you know, I want to make sure that the positive controls are there, the negative controls are there, and you know, this is something that I I try to kind of build up when a first student first joins the lab, and you know, after a while, then then they do it and they don't have to think about it. But like when somebody does an experiment and they come to my office and they say like, just with undergrads too, they they, they show me the results and I'm like, I don't care about the results. Tell me what you did so I know what you're, we're even talking about. And then, you know, walk me through the Western blot or walk me through the PCR results or whatever they are. And then, because sometimes it'll be like, oh, my experiment didn't work. And I'm like, well, what does that even mean? And so, um, you know, we kind of walk through the experiment step by step so I can understand. And I think they can then explain to me, you know, what they did and, and what the results are. And then, you know, I say, all right, well, what's your interpretation of this? And so then I think, by just taking it kind of step by step from the beginning, we can kind of try to identify like, you know, what does it mean that your experiment didn't work? Did the positive control not work? Did the negative control not work? Did, you know, your, was your hypothesis not correct or some, something, which is totally fine if all that other stuff is there. So I don't know, for me, it's just kind of sitting down at my desk and going over like every single step of the actual results um, before we do the the troubleshooting stuff. But to be honest, the, the actual real troubleshooting stuff, I, I would say the people in the lab just go around and talk to other people who've done the experiments or, or like go on YouTube these days and, and look up videos. Um, but, you know, what I really try to do is if, if we're stuck on something, I just go to my whiteboard and I say, all right, walk me through how you did this experiment one step at a time and we'll figure out what happened. Like I had an undergrad who was doing an invasion assay and he was like, all right, you know, well, I did this. And I was like, well, you know, why did you mix this and this together? He's like, oh, I saw that on YouTube. And I was like, well, if you do that, it's never going to work. You know, you have to do 100% of, of this or whatever. And so we figured it out. But um, I don't know. For me, it's just a, a lot of sitting down and, and talking and going step by step. Yeah, it's things like that, like how we resolve these problems that I really might, you know, it's always been my mission to find ways to package that in like digital reproducible or consumable formats. Mm -hmm. um, you see that kind of stuff in tech all the time. Obviously, code is very um, formulaic in that way. And for us, it's so much about storytelling and how we discuss things, being able to, you know, make those into granules. Uh, like, I've done so much troubleshooting. I ran a sequencing core, and um, it was an insane amount of, <laughs> it's always a problem. <laughs> if I had only kept track of all the problems I had, someone else might you know yeah that, that's why i wonder like you know something with like you know code you know the computer is not gonna like make a mistake or something um but you know one day when you're running something your your transfer buffer could be wrong and it's just like you know how would you ever know that unless you throw out all your stuff you know usually you don't even figure that out you just throw out all your reagents and make all new ones and it works again so you know there's so many things that can go wrong for no reason yeah, definitely know the expired reagents. Watch out for that one. Had a bunch exactly. of uh, mess me up. Um, what are some other like hobbies that inspire your work or that keep you, you know, keep you going? <laughs> it's funny. I don't, I don't have hobbies. I, uh, <laughs> I have kids. So <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I, uh, I have a, uh, a group of friends that I hang out with every, uh, or, uh, virtually hang out with every Friday night. And I think, uh, one of those is listening right now. And that, uh, that keeps me sane, I think, um, to know that at the end of uh, every week, I'm going to hang out with my friends and, and just, uh, well, talk for a while and then I'll fall asleep on the couch while, they, while they'll start talking. But, um, well, I don't you, know. You <laughs> Kids, how are you? Um, are they fledgling scientists or? Yeah, my my uh, no, my daughter I think wants to be a, a, a doctor now, um, like an actual doctor, not like her dad. She and uh, but her um, but my son recently decided he wanted to be a scientist, and he has this little like you know 
uh, set that he uses at home and he's obsessed with dinosaur blood. So he's decided he's going to take over my lab when I'm done and, and use it to discover dinosaur blood or something. So I, we'll see. He's only six. <laughs> I feel like there's this like, at least for me, and I've seen it in other people, this pipeline toward scientists, which usually always starts with archaeology for some reason. Something exactly. That. <laughs> um, then, yeah, for me, it was archaeology. Then alchemy. I would go into this forest and get these little things and squish them together and then look into microscopes or whatever. So mm-hmm. there's a pipeline. <laughs> I was always obsessed with, like, uh, I, I wanted to be a, a forensic some kind of like forensic person, but on like the, the science side of it. Um, and then I wanted to work at the CDC and I read like all those virus hunter books. Um, th- there's so many books about like virus hunting at the CDC. I think that's even like one of the titles of them. Um, but oh my God, thank God I didn't do that. It would have been a nightmare now. Yeah. Or I mean, a lot of opportunity now. <laughs> so That's true. Yeah. But you're the first one to get the virus if you're the one looking for them. Um, Yay. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? Just, just curious. Um, I mean, we have lots of friends and whatnot. What do you think is one thing about being a scientist that people don't know or get wrong? Um, that scientists are very smart. <laughs> That's a good one. I get that all the time. Like, it's so annoying when people say that, like, oh, you must be smart. I'm like, no, I'm good at biology. Like, you know, this is one thing I can do. I think I'm good at, like, you know, putting puzzles together. And, you know, I very, but, you know, I can't do my daughter's sixth grade math um, that I'm really struggling with now. So I I think that is something that comes up all the time. Uh, Scientists are, a lot of them are certainly very smart, but I don't know. I, I don't think that that all of us here are, you know, these super geniuses. I just think you need to have an interest and need to have like, you know, the the discover, you know, the the want to discover something. Yeah, I think the the caveat with being a rationalist or uh, you know, some kind of logician is that you miss out on so many other well, there's other kinds of intellect and then there's also EQ, how, why people really do things, or uh, there's just so much more than a formulaic way of, of dissecting things. Definitely. Um, can be effective. Yeah, I think there, there's so many kinds of science too. Like everything is science related. And so, you know, I think more people need to study science, would be so much, uh, you know, so much more educated. And, and even, you know, um, it's, even if you don't study biology, even even those who study like social sciences, you know, that, that stuff is fascinating. And uh, it's so different from what we do and the techniques are so different from what we do. And, you know, the thing, the questions they can ask are, are, are so different and interesting. So what is, what is the deal with bagels? What's your shtick? And, um, you know, what's your favorite bagel spot in New York or even in, Maybe there's a better place that's not in New York. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it'll be New York. <laughs> so, um, you know, I grew up on uh, Long Island in New York. And so bagels were, you know, I'm also Jewish. Bagels were, you know, always around. They were a big part of my growing up. Um, and then when I went to grad school, you know, uh, I, I lived with a, another grad student. Um, uh, and we had, you know, didn't have a lot of money. And so we would buy bagels on is it a Saturday morning, I guess, um, or something like that. And, and so we'd buy a dozen bagels and they would give us six more for free. And that's all we would eat all weekend was just bagels. And so like we just lived on bagels the entire weekend um, and, and into the beginning of the week because it was cheap. And then when <laughs> – thanks, Tom. Uh, yeah, Saturday morning it was. And then when we um, – when I, when I uh, you know, moved in, uh, to, to do my postdoc, it was still on Long Island, and um, we moved into a house, and then I think about six months later or something like that, a bagel store opened up uh, right at the end of my block. And so, you know, I was just eating bagels all the time, and um, there were so many good places on Long Island. And, and then when I moved, and, but it, was the, it wasn't an obsession, it was just a regular part of life, um, just like, you know, deli sandwiches, which you can't, you know, get up in Buffalo, apparently. And so then when I went up to, to Buffalo, I, I looked around and I'm like, oh my God, like there are no bagels here. And uh, there, there are a few places that make them, but I think the, my obsession with them just be, became that I couldn't eat them every day like I, like, like I used to. 
Um, and it became, you know, a mission to try to find the best bagels in Buffalo. And I'm now, you know, friends with, uh, with the person who I think makes the, the best bagels in Buffalo. And, uh, it's, um, it's fun despite the fact that there are not a lot of places here. Can you make them yourself? Do you know how? Uh, one can, um, I do not want to try. It's a multi-day process. Um, it's just way too much effort, uh, that I want to put into it, but there are actually lots of other, um, scientists who I've met on Twitter who have made bagels and have posted, um, uh, recipes on, on these, you know, editable sites and there's lots of comments on them. So there are a bunch of other scientists, excuse me, who have, who have done that and, and the recipes are out there and they look great. Yeah, apparently I, re- I I saw this um, one review in some food magazine or something. It was like, this was very controversial, but apparently like, and it was from a New Yorker that said that the best bagel place they've ever had is this place called Boychick Bagels in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, for real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's crazy. You're, what I did... Um... I think it was last year is I, is I put on Twitter a thread of every bagel I ate in 2022 and um, which became incredibly stressful. Uh, but it was, it was cool. Cause you know, I traveled around a little bit and every place I would go, I would get a bagel and I was like, all right, I'm getting, you know, like the local bagel culture. And I got some great bagels out there. Um, trying to th- I think when I was in uh, Colorado, I got this, um, you know, just a, a really great bagel that I was totally, totally unexpected. So that led to some, some fun experiences, but uh that, that seems crazy that it would be in, in California and not New York. I mean, apparently, like, the water or something is really good, and there's some good bakeries. I don't know. Northern California has it, – it can ex- excel at, you know, doing really good food stuff. Um, yeah. If you could here, – here's an interesting thing. If you want to shout out or if you could collaborate with any scientist right now, like, who do you really – who are you really fascinated by either on Twitter or in general who you're, who you would love to work with or even if you can't necessarily work with them right now, like the research doesn't align, but you're, but you might think I, you know, you really want to. <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. I, I think the real answer is uh, Tom Olino who is uh, listening right now. And he was the, the, my, my graduate school um, uh, roommate and we've been friends since, since college. Uh, and, and one of these people I talk to every Friday night, um, we've been thinking of, of ways to, uh, you know, to, to collaborate or to at least publish in the same journal at the same time for like 20 years. So that would be my dream, but, um, we still have not figured out a way that we can combine, you know, his, his, uh, his research and, uh, and mine. Although now that we're getting into, you know, these anti-anxiety drugs, um, uh, and, and looking at depression and things like that, I think it's certainly, uh, more of a possibility than it was back when I was doing cell signaling research. Um, I think some of the other people, you know, I really miss studying uh, developmental biology. Um, I did that a little bit as a grad student. I went to a uh, developmental biology course for a summer um, on, on Cape Cod at the Marine Biological Laboratory. And um, I would love to go back and do some developmental biology research and really um, look at some of the, the processes that we're studying in terms of gene regulation um, in a developing embryo, because I think it would be uh, fascinating. And there's so many people there at, at uh, that place that I'd love to work with. Very cool. Um, here's a little bit of a kind of maybe like cultural question. Um, what do you think is, what do you think is really great about academia right now? And what do you think really needs to change? I mean, there's been a lot of things with posts, like, really hard to hire postdocs funding what do you do you have any thoughts on that oh yeah it's really tough um i you know i I still think the great part about it is that you can go and research something that you want to and um you know i'm doing exactly what i want to do and and uh doing the work i want to do uh working with great people which i love and the other thing that i really think is cool is that you can kind of set your uh, you can make this job any, anything you want. So like, you know, when I got here, I was really focused on, you know, setting up my lab, getting papers, getting grants, making sure I was stable. And then, but I always knew that I wanted to um, be the director of, of graduate studies for the graduate program because I, I really like working with the students and I wanted to improve our uh, the graduate education. And because I had all these ideas of things I wanted to do, but, you know, 
can only do two, so many things at once. And so um, that's what I wanted to do. And if other people had told me like, you know, you're crazy, why would you ever want to do that job? And I'm like, well, I love it. It, it seems interesting. And so um, that is really what I like that I can kind of be on whatever committees I want and, you know, and, and I'm on the faculty development committee so I can also help train the newer faculty on how to be better mentors because mentorship is really important to me. So, you know, I think one of the huge problems is that, of course, none of us are trained to be mentors except for watching how we were mentored. And that's not always the greatest thing in the world. And so I think trying to get um, uh, new PIs to, um, to be mentors, uh, better mentors by, you know, having actual training programs is, is really important or, or, you know, actually caring about mentorship. You know, when I went up for uh, promotion, the, I didn't have to get letters from anyone that I trained. I could be a terrible PI uh, to my students and it would not matter at all. All that matters was money and papers and what, you know, 10 people on the outside, uh, for, from outside Roswell thought. So um, that's a, a big thing that I'm trying to fix. And being here, I can kind of do all this different stuff that I want to. Um, I think, you know, we have a huge diversity problem and um, tied in with that is lack of pay, um, which definitely go hand in hand. Um, but we need more money from the government to do that. We can't uh, hire postdocs at a very, not even, I don't want to say high salary, I mean higher salaries than they are now because uh, our funding levels from the government have not increased in, in 20 years. Uh, in, in terms of the the amount of money in our budgets, and some institutes are you know raising postdoc salaries and then for one year kind of giving faculty like you know the difference there. But after that one year, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to uh, to those postdocs. So um, yes, postdoc pay is a, a huge problem. We need to shorten the time people are postdocs and not make them be postdocs forever, like I was um, before we give them faculty positions, which means you know we don't need to all. Uh, require that postdocs get these really big papers in order to get um, a job, but it's still really competitive. So uh, it's going to be difficult to make that happen. Um, two two yeah. things. Uh, do you think that on one hand, um, obviously I know when I was in academia and then industry later, uh, a lot of that grant funding is just guzzled up. I mean, half of it is just bureaucracy. Um, do you think that Perver trimming the proverbial fat on that might, I mean, might impact it. Did, did, yeah, is well, it necessary in a lot of ways, do you think, or does it hinder the process? So that's even separate. So, you know, like if, if I, you know, submit a grant and, and, and they say like, you can have $250,000 per year for your research, then Roswell on top of that asks for another $200,000 or whatever it is. It's, it's different for every institution. So that's totally separate. But the issue is within that $250,000, I need to pay a part of my salary. This is where all the salaries of everyone I work, um, that everyone works in my lab comes from. Um, but the real problem is that, you know, uh, professors used to be paid by their school. Now, uh, you know, a lot of places say you need, you're an, essentially an independent contractor. You need to bring in your own salary. Um, so I only need to cover a small part of my salary. So I don't think Roswell is a huge driver of this problem. Um, but a lot of other places, after a couple of years of being a PI, you have to bring in um, your salary, which means getting multiple of these grants in, in, in order to, you know, pay yourself. And if you're paying yourself off of your grants, that's less money that you have available to pay for postdocs. And so um, because the schools are abrogating the responsibility to pay for their faculty, um, that's one of the reasons, I think, why, why uh, postdocs are um, not getting paid as much as they could. I see. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of an interesting feature. And I, I've talked about this before, where historically, the whole concept of academia is inherently class gated. So it was either monastic, or it was you were so rich that you can just pursue it aristocratically. Um, yep. And that's where PhDs even came from. It's just something to do. Uh, but then we converted into this labor market which makes it complicated because it wasn't originally designed for labor <laughs> exactly, you know, and yeah. it's, called, it's that. And I think it, it's also, you know, goes up and down with the, uh, with the job market in industry because, you know, for the past couple of years, the job market industry has been um, amazing and people would go to a postdoc for a year or two and then go to industry and get paid, you know, four times as much. 
but now industry is not hiring as much. And so it might be more attractive to be a postdoc again. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in that regard as well. Yeah, especially as a cost of living, everything goes up. It, 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 maybe in a smaller city or town, it's doable, but in a cosm more cosmopolitan place, forget about it. I mean, in New York, it wasn't that I was at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and um, folks could get, they owned like a lot of these housing that, around the school, around the university. And so they had, and it was all rent controlled. So you could get like a one bedroom in Manhattan for, you know, 1600 or something, which is unbelievable on the Upper East Side. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. You know, I think that's part of the problem is that everybody thinks that they have to, you know, do a postdoc in Boston or, you know, California or something uh, or, or New York City in order to get a job. And unfortunately, when you when you look at well, it, it depends if you want to get a job in one of those places, that might be true. But there are lots of other places. Um, you know, Buffalo is certainly, you know, it's the second biggest city in New York. We've got a lot of cool stuff here uh, and a lot of good science. And I think there are lots of smaller cities that are much, much more affordable. Um, but, you know, there's a reason people want to live in New York and Boston. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, beyond even science, there is other like cultural influences or, or definitely just where the lab is that you're interested in working for as well. Yep. Uh, you had briefly stated earlier about, and I kind of saw a paper, one of your papers on the polyadenylation. Uh, I wanted you to kind of go into what is what is the role of that in pancreatic cancer? And how does that influence some therapeutic implications? Sure. So um, for every, uh, you know, gene, we, we uh, when it's, it's when the, when the DNA is transcribed into mRNA, you have your uh, five prime end of the mRNA, and you have this little untranslated region, then you have your, you know, star codon, and you have exons and introns, and then um, you have, at the, after your stop codon, you have uh, another region that's not translated. Um, and so this is what the uh, kind of like unprocessed mRNA looks like. But that has to be processed. And one of the processing steps is called polyadenylation. And what happens is a complex of proteins will bind to the mRNA and will cleave uh, or, or cut the mRNA um, kind of in, in that untranslated region on the three prime end. Um, and then add the poly-A tail, so you have the, the long uh, poly-A tail, and this is part of the processing. So uh, it seems really silly, but what can happen is you can either get cleavage kind of um, very, very close to the stop codon or further away from the stop codon. So, um, and the sites of cleavage are called polyadenylation uh, sites. And so uh, a lot of genes have two of them, some genes have more of them. So you can have different mRNAs that are produced that have different lengths of the three prime UTR before the uh, polyatel gets added. And uh, it might not seem important, but it turns out in that three prime UTR untranslated region are all of these regulatory sequences that are really important for stability of the mRNA. And so lots of things can bind to the mRNA within that region. And so if you have a long three prime UTR with all of these regulatory regions in there, uh, generally what will happen is that um, lots of these little um, microRNAs, these small 21 nucleotide RNAs can bind to those regulatory regions. And when they do, uh, it leads to cleavage of the mRNA and because you have, you know, and, and so you have much less mRNA around and much less of that protein around. But if you actually get cleavage um, at your, uh, at, at your, at, and have a short three prime uh, UTR, all those regulatory sequences are gone. Now that microRNA has nowhere to bind and now your mRNA is much more stable. And so if that mRNA happens to be coding for a gene that is pro-growth, then you're going to have much more of that pro-growth protein around. And that is, you know, bad if you're a, if you're a cell that doesn't want to be growing, um, like a, or, well, like most cells in our body. So it turns out that in cancer, what happens is you get shortening of three prime UTRs. And so uh, instead of having these long, you know, tightly regulated mRNAs, you get these short um, mRNAs that are not tightly regulated. And it turns out lots of the proteins that are dysregulated are these cancer-causing genes. And so this is one of the ways that cancer can regulate this huge amount of genes just by altering this one process of where the mRNA gets cut. And so um, what we looked at was, you know, we did this, this big study and, and we discovered kind of all the genes in, that are regulated in, in pancreatic cancer. Um, and then in a new paper that hopefully will be published any day now, um, 
We found a uh, the gene that's responsible, the protein that's responsible for cleaving the mRNA is called CPSF3. And if we get rid of CPSF3, now you don't get that cleavage anymore. And so you have these longer three prime UTRs and a lot of those gene regulatory changes go back to normal. And what's even better is that we have a drug that can block CPSF3 activity. Uh, and when we do this, it specifically kills cancer cells, but leaves normal cells alone. And so this is the, the drug that we're um, uh, testing now to, and, and have shown that, that, this, that this process, even though it seems you know, silly and just regulates the length of the three prime UTR is really, really important for cancer cell growth. And now we're trying to combine this drug with other FDA approved drugs and hopefully bring this into mouse models to really um, you know, take it to the next step. That sounds incredible. I love an I love an elegant solution, especially that it already uses this you know existing kind of mechanism. Yeah. So. Well, the the really cool thing about it is that um, when when we first started this project, we, we knew about this this protein called CPSF three, and we're like, oh, what are we gonna what are we gonna do about this? And it turns out there were some um, like anti malarial drugs or anti anti parasitic drugs that the way they work is by attacking the uh, the parasites version of CPSF three. And I said, oh, great, we can just get a medicinal chemist who can kind of mess with it a little bit to make it fit into human CPSF3 and we can see if it works. But while that was ongoing, a paper came out showing that there's been a drug that has been around for 20 years, but no one knew how it worked. Um, but it actually had been in patients uh, in, a, in a clinical trial for, um, for inflammation. And patients took this drug, even though no one knew how it worked. Um, and it didn't kill them, which was great. Um, but it turns out that drug actually inhibits CPSF3. And so the cool thing is now we have a drug um, that no one knew uh, what it did, but it, it does exactly what we want it to do and it doesn't kill patients. And so uh, we, we might have a really good drug in our hands that we never thought uh, possible, which was pretty cool when we started the project. We just got a question. Is that the gene that affects the metabolization of glucose? Uh, no, different one. This is a CPSF3. CPS. But they're actually, yeah, CPSF3. There is actually a relationship between this and glucose, we think. Um, and it, it, it seems that um, when, if we uh, take this drug uh, or this gene away uh, on a different cell type, on these cancer-associated fibroblasts, the metabolism of those cells is totally messed up. And we are trying to un understand what that means right now. Because the, the way that these cancer-associated fibroblasts handle metabolites is actually really important because those fibroblasts are what actually provide lots of nutrients for the tumor cells. And so we think our drug might be really important because it could actually not only or stop the growth of cancer cells, but it could also uh, alter the metabolism of their accessory cells um, and kind of you know block cancer growth in both ways. I see. Um, I think... Still typing another question. He says, so the anti-parasitic drug affects the, the, that gene in question and suppresses its growth. Uh, of the parasite, yep. And so actually, you know, I remember when, when I saw the, the paper, I got really excited and I wrote to the author and they put me in contact with somebody else and the company that had developed that drug was then bought by some other company and no one was working on it anymore. So I... Uh, I hit a, a dead end in my ability to even work uh, with the people who had developed that drug because it was it was no longer being uh, being studied. Yeah, I think it's kind of. I mean, that's something that you're able to uncover, but it it almost makes me sad to think um, all the clinical trials and stuff that didn't work and all that information is just kind of closed and there's no real way to access it per se, even if yeah. or. And then obviously reusing drugs. I mean, that's a great one because once that patent expires, you can make, um, uh, what are they called? G starts with a G. Generics. Generics, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, so that's, that's our plan to, to kind of, um, we're also working with some chemists to try to uh, make a better drug as well because the, the drug is okay. It's, it could be better. Yeah, I know anti-malaria medication, the, I think, for some people, it causes hallucinations and stuff like that. Just the regular stuff that they have right now. Uh, exactly. So um, I think uh, I'm typing a question, but I can also ask, um, what are some of your future upcoming goals or aspirations? How do you want to achieve them? 
And if you did kind of achieve the things you did now, what if you had to make a dramatic shift into a different feat, like field, what would you do? Like, what's your, you know, I'm done, I'm switching to this. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. <laughs> All right. So my big goal was was to uh, get promoted. I got that uh, a few months ago. So I no longer have any goals. <laughs> and um, it, it's really funny because I, this is a common thing, I think, for people who, you know, start as grad students that know they want to be professors. And it's just like, all right, my goal is to become a, you know, get my PhD. Then I want to be a postdoc. And then when I finish my postdoc, I'm going to get a, an assistant professor. And then I'm going to, you know, get tenure or get promoted or whatever. And then that's where it ends. Um, and so I think there are a lot of people who are associate professors. I've spoken to a lot of them who just enter this, this crisis stage of like, now what do I do with my life? Um, and, you know, and go in all kinds of different directions because they're, they're now uh, aimless. So um, I was like that for a while. Um, and now I've, you know, taken over this position as the director of graduate studies and kind of putting everything into that. And so that was another thing that I really wanted to do. So um, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of in the, this position right now where I don't have goals and I'm really happy about it. Um, I really want to uh, have uh, a bigger lab. And so for that, I need to get some more grants. And so I'm really pushing hard to, write more grants and get more people into my lab to keep doing more stuff. And so I think that's what's driving me right now is, is the, the idea that I want to get a few more people into my lab and, um, and just make it a little bit bigger because I really enjoy having lots of people here. Uh, and, and the summer I have, I think I'm going to have four summer students uh, and it's the lab is just bursting with people and it's really exciting to see all the new experiments that are happening and having people come in here and tell me about what they're doing and things like that. Um, so that that's that's kind of my goal, just to just to keep going and and uh, maintain, but maybe grow a little bit. And if I I don't know if 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 cancer was was cured tomorrow and I didn't have to do this anymore, uh, or didn't I guess I don't have to do it, but I didn't do this anymore, I would probably work in my friend's bagel shop. Um, that, that seems fun. Honestly, I can already see the I can already see the headline in like Michelin Guide or something. <laughs> ex-scientist like optimizes for the best bagel on earth or something and it's like this shop in buffalo and everybody <laughs> goes berserk for it that would be my dream it'd be wonderful <laughs> um uh tom i think has a question he says um on the antidepressant slash benzodiazepine work, the SSRIs are much more long-lasting and the benzodiazepines are much shorter action. Is there anything known about the timing of the effect of benzos on tumor functioning, i.e. take the benzos ahead of chemo versus taking them at different times, not near the treatment? Tom, that's an awesome question. We uh, actually tried to study that in our, um, in our epidemiological data, try to understand if there was a difference between patients who had kind of taken them before versus kind of taking them kind of at the time of chemotherapy, we really weren't able to figure that out. Um, I think, uh, so yes, that's something that we are going to try to answer in our mouse models. Um, definitely, because we have no idea what the answer is. Because we think what, what's really happening is that the addition of, of these drugs is really... Um, increasing the density of the tumor microenvironment, which is making it harder for chemotherapy to get in. And we know this process actually happens um, early. And so pancreatic cancer is, is normally really, really, uh, it's pretty dense. Um, but that density kind of even starts back at the, um, at the pre-malignant lesion stage. And we actually had a mouse that we thought had a tumor, treated it with lorazepam, and found um, when we opened it up that there wasn't a tumor, but there was a pre-malignant lesion inside of it. And it was also surrounded by this huge amount of um, inflammation. And so we think that this is a process that's, that could be happening uh, kind of even before tumor genesis uh, happens. And so the goal is to, uh, yeah, understand the timing of it. And also I think it's going to be important when we take alprazolam, which is the drug that we think is having the anti-inflammatory effect, and really try to understand when the best time to dose that is. And I think it's going to be kind of before uh, the chemotherapy would be the, the most important time. But what's really cool is that, you know, uh, there's even shorter acting drugs like midazolam that like tons of patients are given. That's actually the most commonly prescribed benzo uh, for cancer patients because it's given before like surgical procedures. 
uh, but it's incredibly short acting. And so we went for the, the middle acting ones, but I think there could also be interactions with these, with these SSRIs as well that, that we're going to uh, hopefully look at too. That was one of my ideas, but the, the graduate student decided to work on opioids instead. <laughs> I love the, um, the suffixes they use for all these drugs. It's like wham, bam, lorazepam. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, it relates to something. I, it, <laughs> the, the cancer drugs all have, uh, you know, endings that make sense, like AB are all antibodies and IB are small molecules or something, but I think they've now gone off the rails. Yeah, it's like, uh, they're just also bizarre sounding suffixes, like ipilimumab, or it's like, uh, yeah. reminds me of that, there's that really infectious yeah. song. It's called like, the bird is the word, but when it when they first start singing it, they do this like blubbery gibberish sound. <laughs> That's what that <laughs> Um, but okay. I mean, that's all for the questions. Um, uh, it's been a great time chatting, learning about your work, learning about yourself. Um, honestly, it sounds like you have a really fun lab. I wish I could go back in time and <laughs> in this lab. <laughs> well, we're always recruiting grad students. And so, uh, if you know anybody, um, let me know. Always looking for grad students. I mean, I'll make sure to, uh, I'll make sure to shout that out if you have a yep. list, actually. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thanks for taking the time to listen, guys. And thank you, uh, Dr. Fagan, for your time. And all right, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, peace out.